Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. Sorry I had to miss last week. I missed you guys, but I am uh, excited to be back, uh, continuing our way through Sauron Defeated here. Um, uh, so uh, this is going to be a lot of fun. It's so neat to get back into the history of the Lord of the Rings. Um, and I don't know about you, but I had my mind blown at least once during today's reading. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. So the history of Middle-earth books, I've read them. I've never before read them like cover to cover all the way through. I've just kind of read around in them. Uh, and so I've read them before. But it's been years since I've read them. And ever since we've begun our trip through together, I've been deliberately not reading the ones to come. Uh, so by now, it's been a long time since I've read these later volumes. So there are so many things that I'm discovering as if it were for the first time. Uh, it's been really cool. Um, and so there was yet another thing which I had completely forgotten existed uh, and uh, was uh, really really fun. So we'll get there. Uh, we'll get there. Uh, I hope you guys had fun with that too. So before we get too uh, far into things here today, though, uh, a couple quick announcements. First, I, I had been mentioning that tomorrow, the 30th of uh, May, uh, we were meant to have a, a discussion for the Mythgard Movie Club on uh, Camelot, the Arthurian uh, musical. Um, in celebration of finishing our Mallory course, um, we have to postpone that. We're still going to have that, still going to happen, um, but we're going to have to postpone that until later in the summer, maybe July, maybe August, not quite sure yet. Um, one of the uh, organizers had uh, death in the family, so we had to uh, 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 postpone that. And of course, our uh, uh, thoughts are with her and her family, and uh, we'll get back to it sometime soon. So just to make sure everybody knows that's not happening tomorrow. And anyway, um, the other thing, of course, is Mythmoot, because in addition to, um, uh, in addition to our, um, the usual announcements, that is, there's about oh, a little bit less now than two weeks, uh, about a week and a half left in registration for Mythmoot. Uh, uh, and of course, but if you can't make it, there's Mootcast, right? That's all new. But there's a new thing, which is the schedule has been posted. So if you want to check out the schedule, uh, the preliminary schedule, which is going to change, um, but we have the, the preliminary one there available. So anyway, um, that I wanted to draw your attention to that. So starting to get excited about Mythmoot now, right? We're about a month out now. I'm beginning, it's beginning to get it closer. I'm sort of... You know, making my travel plans more clearly, and I'm uh, getting excited. So, um, anyway, it's gonna be uh, it's it's gonna be awesome. Um, okay, so there we go, there we go. Um, all right, uh, let's see. <laughs> Sorry, I see that on the Twitch chat. Tarlonio is teasing me, saying. Uh, no boulders or homely houses in today's reading, so we may get somewhere. Ha, ha, ha. Teasing me for uh, the prolonged time we took. We, we discussed the phrase, the last homely house, for about an hour last night uh, in Exploring the Lord of the Rings. It was awesome. Again, mind blown last night. Uh, it's been fantastic. So anyhow, um, uh, great. So <laughs> the guaranteed set-in-stone schedule has arrived. Yeah. Yeah, keep telling yourself that, Stephen. Maybe. Maybe that'll work out. Okay. All right. Um, 
So, wanted to bring Myth Moot back to your attention. Now, let us move on into the text, because last time, two weeks ago, we had just gotten up to the point of discussing Sam's poem. So we're going to start with that. Uh, for your homework, I asked you to read it and think about um, what poem it reminded you of, right? So we'll start off first reminding ourselves of Sam's song in the published Return of the King. I think it's important for us to have that kind of in our ears. I want to I refresh our memories of that, and then we'll go back and read the first draft so we can be comparing a bit more closely. Uh, and then we will make contact back with that other poem that it sure made me think of, and I think many of you as well. Um, uh, but first, let's recall the published version of Sam's song in the Tower of Kirithungal. In western lands beneath the sun, the flowers may rise in spring. The trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches sing. Or there, maybe, tis cloudless night, and swaying beeches bear the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. Though here at journey's end I lie, and darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun, and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. Okay, so of course both of the stanzas are involved with describing and thinking about nature, right? Um, in the first one he's talking about the beauties in the world, right? But notice how he's using the conditional from the from the beginning, right? In western lands beneath the sun, far away from where he is, right? The flowers may rise in spring. This may happen, like almost theoretically, right? The flowers rising in spring, the trees budding, the waters running, the merry finches singing. Or then he's imagining a cloudless night and swaying beaches bearing the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair, right? These things are probably happening uh, somewhere off in the distance. Gosh, something I never really noticed about that is the seasonal change. Maybe I have noticed and I've forgotten, but that's one of the good things about being forgetful. You get to discover things and it's like they're brand new all over again. Um, how he's talking about the flowers rising in spring, right? And then the second half of that first stanza, he seems to be describing winter, right? Seeing the stars through the, uh, the, the bare branches uh, of the beaches. Anyway, so like the seasons turn and there are beauties of the spring and there are beauties of the of the fall and winter. And, uh, you know, that's but that's all far away. Right. Um, he is lying at journey's end and buried deep in darkness. Right. But again, we have the whole the second stanza is also conditional, but it's conditional in a different way. Right. Although. Right. Though I lie at journey's end in darkness buried deep. Now we're going to get to the only indicative clause in the entire song, right? Though here at, sorry, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell. The sun, in, the sun rides, the stars dwell. That's indicative, right? That is a fact. It might be beyond, you know, we, we have all these, these, uh, Modifiers first, right? Where is it happening? It's this is this may be this is beyond all towers strong and high. This is beyond the mountain steep, above all shadows. I love how that's that captures both um, the, his sense of distance. Like the, there's all of this stuff is between him and them, right? Um, he can't see them because of the towers strong and high, because of the steep mountains, and because of the shadows, right? All of these things are between him and them. They are beyond 
all those things. But of course, they're also beyond in another and bigger sense, right? They are untouchable by the towers, the mountains, or the shadows. Um, I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. Um, this His declaration, right, that he is not going to give up, that he is not going to um, say farewell to the stars or, uh, or admit that the day is done. Uh, wonderful. Yes, Tony, this is Estelle. You're absolutely right. I think that this... You know, when people think of a Lord of the Rings illustration of Estelle, of hope, um, you know, high hope uh, in Tolkien's sense, the scene with Sam and the star, right, that he sees is the first one I think that most people think of very appropriately and it is an excellent illustration. But I agree, Tony, for my money, the second stanza of this poem is uh, um, a really, really wonderful explanation. Um but um, anyway, anyway, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yes. No, Devar, I wasn't suggesting that he's saying that the branches are bare, B-A-R-E. Um, though I suppose I was making a pun, perhaps inadvertently. It's probably because it's, it's Arthur's fault. But rather, um, simply that, like, I mean, with if they're full of leaves, you probably couldn't see the stars so well through them. Maybe. Maybe I just haven't looked at the stars through beech trees enough. Uh, and if it's spring, maybe and they're just budding, right, in the leaves. But I, I would think a tree in full foliage, even a beech tree in full foliage, would kind of obscure the stars. So that's why I was imagining um, a winter tree there. But it, it could be a spring tree as well. One way or the other. Not sure it matters, but... Um, Okay, this is where, this is Sam's song, you know, the song that we all know and love. Let's go back to the first version of it here that we got in uh, at the end of the last chapter. I sit upon the stones alone, the fire is burning red. The tower is tall, the mountains dark, all living things are dead. In western lands the sun may shine, their flower and tree in spring is opening, is blossoming, and there the finches sing. But here I sit alone and think of days when grass was green and earth was brown and I was young. They might have never been, for they are past, forever lost, and here the shadows lie deep upon my heavy heart and hope and daylight die. But still I sit and think of you. I see you far away, walking down the homely roads on a bright and windy day. It was merry then, when I could run to answer to your call, could hear your voice or take your hand, but now the night must fall. And now beyond the world I sit, and know not where you lie. O master dear, will you not hear my voice before we die? That is the first version of Sam's song. Um, Very remarkable. Very remarkable. Um, and yes, you are absolutely uh, correct. Uh, the, all of those of you who are thinking about um, uh, who are thinking about Bilbo's "I sit beside I, I I sit beside the fire and think" poem in Rivendell. Yes, yes, that's the one. Um, that is definitely the one that I'm thinking of, and we'll we'll come to that in a second. Um, first comparison. Uh, 
back to, well, forward, I guess, whatever, uh, comparison to uh, the published version. Uh, the first and most obvious difference, right, in these first two, it's longer, for one thing. Okay, that's fairly obvious. Um, the rhythm is is similar, but not identical. The meter's identical, right? Iambic tetrameter. It's Hobbit meter, right? Both of them in Hobbit meter. Um, but it feels different. Didn't you hear it? Hear the difference? Let's go back. Whoop, not that far back. In western lands beneath the sun, the flowers may rise in spring. The trees may bud, the waters run, the merry finches sing. Or there, maybe, tis cloudless night and swaying beaches bear the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair. <sighs> Matter breath. Okay. I sit upon the stones alone. The fire is burning red. The tower is tall. The mountains dark. All living things are dead. In western lands the sun may shine, their flower and tree in spring is opening, is blossoming, and there the finches sing. Tarlonio, absolutely, it's much choppier. Um, there's a great deal more enjambment. I was out of breath because I can't pause for breath anywhere in that second quatrain of that first stanza of the published poem. Um, this is much choppier. Not only do you have a full break at almost the end of every line, um, notice how he even has punctuated them with semicolons, right? Unlike, uh, you know, where we get nothing or just commas, except for the periods at the end of each quatrain there, right? And of course, in the second stanza of the published song, we don't even get it there, right? We get the longest pause that we get is between the, you know, before the final two lines, right? Though here at journey's end I lie in darkness buried deep, beyond all towers strong and high, beyond all mountains steep, above all shadows rides the sun and stars forever dwell. I will not say the day is done, nor bid the stars farewell. That's one sentence, right? That final clause is kind of joined on, right? It's it's uh, uh, it's not like it all has one subject and verb, but... Um, uh, so it's, it's a it's a it's a complex sentence, uh, but it's still nevertheless all one rolling thought, right? Whereas we get this sort of series of images. Even the rep we pause for repetition, right? Is opening, is blossoming, and there the finches sing. It gives you a much kind of it's slower, uh, a little bit more contemplative for that reason, right? Less momentum than uh, the published poem. Um, yes, good, Tony. This one is much more monosyllabic as well. Um, uh, yes, and also not only monosyllabic, but less uh, uh, fewer metaphors, right? Um, and similes. Uh, the elven stars as... Uh, swaying beaches bear the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair, right? Um, whereas... All we get are generally simple descriptions here. The fire is burning red. The tower is tall. The mountains dark. Um, their flower and tree in spring is opening, is blossoming, and there the finches sing. Much simpler, right? Much more straightforward. The, 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 the words are simpler. The cadence is simpler uh, and slower. Okay. Um, Ooh, Devorah, come back to that comment. That's a really good comment. Hang on. Okay. 
Now, of course, the other obvious thing about that first stanza is that it's super depressing, right? All living things are dead. It's like, whoa, okay, we're not in the same place. In the previous first stanza, right, we have a lot of the same images. We get the finches, right? We get the uh, the, the 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 flowers, right? We get we get trees. Um, there's opening and blossoming happening, right? So we 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 get the spring. We even get the conditional, right? But of course, the conditional works to such a different effect, right? In Western lands, the flowers may rise in spring, right? Or there may be, tis cloudless night. Um, these things may be happening out West. So it kind of suspends the question of like, okay, that might be happening out West. What's happening here, right? What's happening here? Whereas in the, in the, in the old song, we do get the conditional. But the conditional notice only comes in after he's established the basic facts of the present, right? I sit upon the stones alone. The fire is burning red. This is where I am, and this is what it looks like. The tower is tall. The mountain's dark. All living things are dead. Oh, okay. Um, th- those are the facts, right? Lots of very simple indicative clauses there. And then we get the conditional, right? So having established those very bleak facts, right, um, we um, we have, in Western lands, the sun may shine, their flower and tree in spring is opening, is blossoming, and there the finches sing. And it's uncertain yet at the end of the first stanza what direction we're going here. Is he, is he just saying, like, okay, everything around me is horrible, but maybe out in the West... Th- so is he taking hope, right? Is he thinking... You know, but I'm going to think about the nice things that admittedly aren't happening anywhere near me. But right. But I remember them. Right. That could be uh, where he's going. But of course, we also have the possibility that um, the conditional phrasing right in Western lands, the sun may shine. Uh, now, after the gloomy and depressing first four lines, it be, I begin to almost hear the conditional in the other way. Right. Like expressing not hope but doubt is the sun shining in western lands he remembers it was but is it anymore he's seen the shadow stretch across the sky and reach out into the west right uh, the sun may shine um he does state more firmly that flower and tree in spring is opening is blossoming and there the finches sing so probably hope and not doubt but uh, anyway it certainly to me has a sort of a different effect right Then the second stanza. But here I sit alone and think of days when grass was green and earth was brown and I was young. They might have never been. Right. So now he's thinking back. Now he's speaking in the indicative, but in the past tense. So on the one hand, he is recalling happy and beautiful things. But in recalling the happy and beautiful things, right, the green grass and the brown earth and the days of his youth, what he's primarily reflecting on is the distance, right? The hat was a long time ago. And from where he's sitting, they are almost infinitely removed from him. So again, hope or despair. It's beginning to sound more like despair now. For they are past, forever lost. And here the shadows lie deep upon my heavy heart and hope and daylight die. Whoa, okay, Sam. So not Estelle. Right, He seems to be going in the opposite direction here towards despair. He talks about the death of hope, right? 
here, at the very least, he's stating a temptation to despair, right? Acknowledging a temptation to despair. Um, we get, like in the published poem, the gap between the darkness and the towers and the mountains that surround him. He acknowledges that he is in darkness, right? But he clings to the knowledge um, of the light and life and hope that is above it and beyond it, right? Beyond, 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 repeated in the published uh, poem. Here, he really focuses on his surroundings, right? Those things he remembers, those happy things, are long ago, and they might as well be infinitely removed, because they're lost. They're lost. In one sense, of course, it's very simple, right? That is, things in the past are always lost, right? I mean, you can never go back to the past. Um, things that are in the past have never been again, right? Um, you know, the things that happened yesterday will never come again. Uh, you know, of course, sir, Tarlonio, you might be encouraged by that, right? Because uh, that, that included me talking more about boulders. Um, but anyway, um, it's, um, yeah, you can never get the past back again, right? So in one sense, of course, it is a simple uh, piece of logical truth that the past, the things of the past are forever lost. But of course, in this context, those things from his past meaning the green grass and the brown earth and the happy times and the beauty of the land of his youth might, of course, be lost in yet another and more serious sense, right? Um, they might be lost. They might be destroyed. He has been removed from them. He will probably never see them again. But even worse, they themselves might also be destroyed, right? Um, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. Um, but we get a third stanza. And the third stanza starts with but. And that's an encouraging sign, right? An encouraging sign because, of course, he's just been saying kind of depressive things. So he's been acknowledging at least the temptation to doubt, at least the temptation to despair if not voicing actual despair and actual doubt. Um, but then we get a but, which is good, right? But still I sit and think of you. I see you far away, walking down the homely roads on a bright and windy day. It was merry then when I could run to answer to your call, could hear your voice or take your hand, but now the night must fall. And now beyond the world I sit and know not where you lie. Oh, master dear, will you not hear my voice before we die? Okay. Um, but still I sit and think of you. Sounds like that's a good start, Sam. Right? But still I sit and think of you. So he takes hope in thoughts of his master, right? His hopeful, his search in spite of apparent despair. I mean, he had a moment of despair. I mean, he contemplated suicide, right, near what he thought was Frodo's corpse. Uh, and then he discovers that although Frodo is alive, he's taken by the enemy, right? So uh, he's been taken by the orcs into their into their stronghold here, Um 
lots of temptation to despair, but he hasn't despaired. He has kept on, right? Okay. Um, and yet, notice where it goes right away. When he's thinking of Frodo, how is he thinking of Frodo? What is he thinking? I see you far away walking down the homely roads on a bright and windy day. Well, that's nice, right? He is remembering his master during the happy days back in the Shire. But, um, but Sam, hang on, weren't those days, aren't they past and forever lost? Isn't that bad? Isn't that at least first cousin to the despair? I thought we were doing a but here, right? I thought we were pivoting and turning in a different direction. But although it sounded for like a line, like maybe he was going to go in a different direction, the rest of that quatrain, less so. And then again, speaking in the past tense, it was merry then when I could run to answer to your call, could hear your voice or take your hand. Conditional again. It was merry then. He remembers happiness. What made it happy, right? The conditional is his memory. He has these conditional memories of happiness, right? Merriment was associated with those times when he was able to, when he could run to answer Frodo, right? When he could hear his voice or take his hand. Indicative statement. But now the night must fall. Now the night must fall. Um, must. Must is a strong word. It's not a doubt lest the night fall. That's not a fear of the falling of the night. Um, that is not a, you know, um, a, 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 you know, premonition <laughs> that the, the night may be coming, right? Um, that is a, a, a very firm statement. The night must fall. It is unavoidable, the falling of the night. The falling of the night, which seems to eclipse, is prepared to eclipse all of those happy memories. All of those happy memories of the Shire, of Frodo, are passing away. Forever lost, like the other ones. Like the green grass and the brown earth. And now beyond the world I sit and know not where you lie. O master dear, will you not hear my voice before we die? Um, Beyond the world is really interesting, of course, especially interesting given all of those beyonds that we get in his published song, right? Um, The beyonds, of course, were the, some of the, the, those were like, Arguably, beyond was sort of the most important word of that whole second stanza, right? Beyond, 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 repeated three times, right? Expressing both how far away from him it was, and yet simultaneously how unassailable by darkness and the power of darkness those beautiful things were, right? Um, Now, he is beyond the world, like he is so lost to everything. All of those things that he remembers. Everything. He's just, it's just darkness, right? Almost, it's like that he's surrounded by, he speaks as if he is surrounded by the darkness of nothingness. Like he's in the void, right? The whole world itself has been, um, 
Holy cow, Kate. Hurled backwards into the old abyss. Sorry, Kate Niggle was uh, uh, Kate 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 Neville was was thinking of um, uh, was was emailing me and saying that she was also thinking of Baron's song uh, for Luthien when he's departing Luthien. Um, uh, not metrically, it's different, but some of the some of the ideas are sort of similar. Uh, and I've been kind of slowly kind of percolating that in my head, Kate. Now all of a sudden that line just burst into my head there. I didn't think of that before. Um, but yes, Baron speaks about, theoretically, about the world being hurled backwards into the abyss. Sam, Sam's there, right? Sam is in the abyss. Or rather, Sam is left. The whole world has been hurled backwards into the abyss and he's the only one left, right? Um, and if only he could just hear Frodo's, but he doesn't know where Frodo lies. Now, the use of the word lie seems to me significant there too. Does he believe that, that does he believe that Frodo's dead already? Right. That Shangrat killed him. Um, and so he's saying, I don't even know where your corpse is to mourn over you. I'm not quite sure. Like I know not where you lie. That almost makes it sound like, I don't know where, like, you know, your body's in an unmarked grave or, you know, more distressingly in an Orcish cook pot or something like that. Um, that seems, um, um, that seems, wow, it's how that line hits me. Oh, master dear, will you not hear my voice before we lie? It's my least favorite two lines of the poem. Um, I like, O oh Master, dear, will you not hear? My favorite part of those two lines is the internal rhyme. Um, I like how it ends with the internal rhyme, and I love how he works, Master Dear, uh, right, as uh, as the internal rhyme, right, by by bringing that in. I I I like that particular technique there. What I don't like about those two lines is, will you not hear my voice before we die is a little too on the nose, right? Like I'm singing a song in the darkness to which Frodo is going to respond and ending his song being like, will you not hear my voice before we die? And then Frodo is like, yes, I hear your voice. Oh, Sam. Um, you know, I like that's, that's a little, I don't like that's, it's kind of, well, not it's, I guess a little too on the nose. I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of that. Um, but, um, but I do like, oh, master dear, will you not hear? Um, yeah, good. Um, so I've said this many times, but I'll say it one more time. Um, Sam, this is a love song, as I've called it, obviously a love song. Right. Uh, it even is borrowing tropes from love songs. I sit and think of you. Right. Um, but w- a bunch of you are speaking as if there must therefore be some conflict between this and Rosie, you know, uh, 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 Rosie being second best or, you know, not wanting to hear this song. Why on earth wouldn't she? Rosie would have no I can't imagine Rosie having the first objection if she heard this song. Why on earth? Why on earth do we in our society refuse to acknowledge any love other than erotic love or to imagine that if one loves a person, like one cannot love different people? It's just 
drives me bananas. Of course, Sam loves Frodo. I see. Do you see anything sexual in this? The only thing even vague, the only thing physical is the taking of your hand, though, again, there is to say, like, can there be no physical demonstrations of of love and affection outside uh, the sexual sphere? Why on earth should that be? That was certainly never so in older societies. And, and I don't see any reason to think that. I just, this, like, where do you see eroticism here? Uh, I'd love, absolutely. Very strong, very clear expressions of love. And I would never, ever say anything to diminish uh, the fact of, uh, uh, you know, Sam's openly professed love for his master. What is plainer than that in the story? Um, and yet, to me, the... Um, the the simple equivalency, right? To say to to imagine that in in Sam's mind there's some kind of conflict between his love for his master uh, and his love for Rosie, uh, you know, the eventual love for Rosie, who seems not to have been invented yet. Um, when Tolkien got to this point, again, I don't I don't understand. I don't understand why there why there must be a uh, uh, a conflict there. Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> Jordan Jordan Gitzel says the only eroticism I see is in the Finches singing. Yeah, you're right. Might be a little hint of it there with the Finches. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, Tony, it does almost feel like familial love. Um, uh, yeah, I, I I I agree. I mean. This last stanza, you could easily sing to a parent or a sibling. Absolutely, you totally could, right? I don't see a single thing in this last stanza uh, that you couldn't sing uh, to your mom. Um, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway. Um, Michelle, I don't think... Impromptu. Well, uh, so Michelle's asking, even in, in an unsexual sense, would an impromptu physical contact like that be a bit forward from servant to master? I, I don't think so. Um, well, I mean, of course, Michelle, I'm just thinking of the passage we almost got to in exploring the Lord of the Rings last night, when, of course, Sam comes in and uh, clasps his hand, grabs his hand, takes his hand, right, to use the phrase here, uh, in Rivendell. Right. When he sees him up and about. Um, and by the way, wow. OK, spoilers for next Tuesday. Um, how many of you have always imagined that scene happening while Frodo was still in bed like it does in the movie? Right. Frodo is standing up and dressed and about to leave the room when Sam comes in and walks up to him, you know, runs up to him while Frodo is standing there, fully dressed, looking at himself in the mirror. Right. Uh, and uh, and grabs his hand. Right. That and it doesn't doesn't seem weird. Right. Uh, uh, yeah. And I agree, Kate. Uh, it wouldn't be weird for a body servant to come up and and initiate physical contact. Right. That would be a thing that happens. Absolutely. Um, OK, Stephen, you're right. I wouldn't call my mom. Oh, master dear either. Right. Uh, so you would have to do a little replacement there, Stephen. You have to, <laughs> to replace it with oh, mother dear and you'd be fine. Right. Um, yeah. 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 Um, anyway, I, 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 to me, this is not about, um, I get the source of the frustration that I do often feel, 
um, when people want to discuss homoeroticism between Frodo and Sam. Um, it's not at all like a desire of mine to downplay the love between the two of them. That just strikes me and has always stricken me as a very narrow reading, um, not just of this text, but of love, frankly. Again, as if all love is eroticism. And I just, I don't believe that all love is eroticism. I just, I'm sorry, I don't. Um, and I think that you can even make poetry about love, which is not necessarily eros. You know, uh, there's, there, uh, there, you know, you know, there it is. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. And James, absolutely. Medieval familial expression was definitely, uh, was definitely forward in that sense. Yes. Physical contact, even, you know, kissing and stuff. I mean, it's really, it's not, um, it's unusual in the modern world, much less unusual every other era. Um, um, yeah. So Tarlonio, my, what I would call it a better term than homoeroticism. I would just call it love. Like, just call it love. There are different kinds of love, right? I say I love you to my wife. I say I love you to my mom. I say I love you to my dog. All right? I say I love you to my children. Um, I could, I would say I love you to my... I've said I love you to my friends before. You know, I, I, I've said I love you to my students before. I've said that to you guys before. I love you all, right? I mean, I don't mean that word in the same sense. There are many senses of it. It just seems to me like... A, anyway, there it is. Um, yes. And a couple of you are referring to Lewis's The Four Loves. Absolutely. I mean, I, I know that my own thought is, is certainly influenced by the fact that, uh, you know, I sort of absorbed C.S. Lewis's The Four Loves at an early age. And that is always something that I found really satisfying. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, yeah. Anyhow. So yeah, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox on the love question. Uh, but uh, uh, anyway, um, oh, all these expressions of returned affection, right? This is a real warm, fuzzy session. This is, this is great. Um, but um, anyway, yeah, Tony, it is interesting. I mean, I, 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 I agree with you that one of the really fascinating things about this is that we have the one word that we keep using for all those things. Um, and we don't have very many, very satisfying, um, uh, uh, very satisfying, uh, verbs for that. I mean, we have like, but that's kind of pathetic, right? I mean, like is only used for like lukewarm love, right? Like, but I love you, but only a really tiny bit, right? I, I just like you. Um, and that's, that's not, that's not, that's not okay. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Whereas other languages like Greek, James, exactly. The, the, uh, the language from which C.S. Lewis draws the, the words for the four different loves. Yeah has very different words uh, for these different kinds of loves. Um, so, yeah, no, that's an issue. Anyhow, okay. <laughs> moving on, moving on from this. But again, I'm not wanting to water down the fact that this is clearly a love song to Frodo. But back to the bigger picture of the song, right? Yes, he is, but he's not sustained by his love for Frodo. Where we get is, so it's like, depressing at the beginning and then 
extending the depression <laughs> to Frodo, right? Um, his the song of of um, his song of despair, which ultimately it does seem to be a song of despair, ends with Frodo, right? Um, but despairing there too. His highest goal, right? His one wish, um, as Sam himself might say, is just that Frodo could hear him before they die. Like, given, they're going to both die, right? That's that's a given. Um, but he just wishes that Frodo could hear him before they die. Um, doesn't seem like asking too much. Um, yeah, James, this is more like uh, a lament. Um, yeah, yeah, it's certainly closer to that anyway. So, the shift from the old song to the new song is amazing, right? I mean, this is, it is hard to get more night today than this reversal, right? Um, and here, Kate, I want to come back to your, uh, the email that you sent me, which I thought was really good. And I, we haven't discussed the, um, we haven't discussed the, the song with, uh, uh, Baron and Luthien. I didn't get a chance to include that in the slideshow, but, um, uh, she was thinking about how, um, the, you know, the, Baron and Sam both think about the beauty of the natural world, uh, and and the, before they turn some, their thoughts to something more important, the person they love. Um, she says that this song is despairing, but it's almost as if Tolkien remembered Baron and realized that despair didn't belong to Sam. Sorrow and fear, yes, but not despair. And she says, I wonder if that's part of the power of the Shire. Um, Yes. You know, Kate, that is to me a really fascinating thing. If we go back, it's not just that we get the the big ending, right? It's not just that we get the really strong Estil stanza in the second part of the song. His memories of the Western lands beneath the sun, right, are much clearer and much stronger. Um, the power of the Shire, uh, uh, Kate, as you say, is stronger in the newer poem, right? Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, we get this glimpse of Sam almost, I don't know, is it maybe too strong? Um, but it's almost like, especially when we get in the second, in the second quatrain of that first stanza, when he really waxes poetic with the simile, right? The, the beginning is relatively simple. Um, he does describe the finches as merry, which he doesn't do uh, in the other one, as someone was pointing out. But um, he um, he then says, or there, maybe, I love the baby, right? The maybe, like he's indulging his imagination, like he's enchanting himself with the memory of the Western lands or the imagination of what might be happening. Like briefly, in his own imagination, he is able to transport himself, right, to enchant himself into seeing the cloudless night and swaying beaches bearing the elven stars as jewels white amid their branching hair, right? The metaphor of the hair and the similes of the jewels and the, 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 the visual image of the swaying beaches and the cloudless night, right? He really gets into it. The, the beauty of the world that he remembers is much more present 
to him. He is certainly not just saying, but that's all dead and gone, right? That, that's gone and can't be recovered again, which is where he goes with it uh, in the original one. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Christopher, that is interesting. Um, Christopher notes that even in despair, Sam wants to comfort Frodo before they die, right? He's not wanting to hear Frodo's voice. He's wanting for Frodo to hear his voice. Christopher, that's a really wonderful observation. Um, as a love poem, you would almost expect that, right? Oh, masters, dear, could I not hear your voice before we die, right? Like, he's longing for the master that he loves, but even in his longing, he's not thinking of himself, right? He's thinking of um, he's thinking of, of, of comforting Frodo. I think that's just a wonderful observation there. Um, yeah, good, good, very good. Um, well, let's, com- let's bring into this discussion another poem, because two was not enough. Um, of course, as many of you were noticing, and it was really striking to me, this old poem of Sam's sounds a lot like Bilbo's song that he sings in Rivendell, uh, which gets put into uh, the uh, Ringo South chapter. I sit beside the fire and think of all that I have seen, of meadow flowers and butterflies in summers that have been, of yellow leaves and gossamer and autumns that there were, with morning mist and silver sun and wind upon my hair. I sit beside the fire and think of how the world will be when winter comes without a spring that I shall ever see. For still there are so many things that I have never seen. In every wood, in every spring, there is a different green. I sit beside the fire and think of people long ago and people who will see a world that I shall never know. But all the while I sit and think of times that were before, I listen for returning feet and voices at the door. Okay, well, certainly the overall frame of this poem, that is the overall kind of tenor of this poem, is very different. Um, Notice the parallels. Um, First, the sitting, right? All three of Sam's old stanzas are framed, I sit upon the stones alone. But here I sit alone and think, but still I sit and think of you, right? So there's, there's all this sitting, right? All this sitting and thinking, all this sitting and picturing, all this sitting and remembering, imagining the beautiful things that are dead now, right? Imagining the past, which might as well never have been, it's removed so far and the past is forever lost, right? Thinking of the master who is probably dead and is certainly going to die, but whom he wishes he could connect with briefly for his master's comfort at least one more time, right? Bilbo's sitting and thinking, right? Um, He is sitting and thinking and relating to the nature that he can picture, his memories of beautiful things and of the past. And uh, what are his conclusions, right? Um, First of all, notice... All of the sitting that's going on uh, is sitting beside the fire. I sit beside the fire and think. I sit beside the fire and think. I sit beside the fire and think three times. And then, but all the while, I sit and think. Presumably still by the fire, 
right? So Bilbo himself does not move. And of course, the frame is happier, though, of course, very strikingly similar. I sit upon the stones alone. The fire is burning red. Hey, he's sitting beside the fire and thinking too, right? Except it's a different fire in a very different circumstance, right? Um, so that's kind of funny. Um, did I, I don't think I asked this yet, and I f- totally forgot to look it up. Um, Re- Return of the Shadow. Was this poem in there? Did he mention the poem? What I want to know is, what I'm really now curious about, looking at the parallels between these poems, did Sam's poem inspire Bilbo's song? I, we've seen so many times in our discussions here, especially in these last few volumes, um, what an inveterate recycler Tolkien is, right? The conservation of writing uh, that he almost always does. Um, Given that the song that he gives to Sam the first time, he doesn't so much revise as totally rewrite, right? You know, he he shapes a completely new poem on a totally new theme uh, with some similar content, but... um, but that old poem is gone. I mean, Sam's new poem is not just a new version of the old poem. It's a very different poem. So he's now got that poem in that drawer where he puts all of his, uh, all of the, the clippings right from the text that he's cut out, like the, the drawer uh, in which uh, Odo lives, right? Um, still, still somewhere Odo lives on in that drawer. Um, so uh, I wonder... Um, uh, yeah, well, no, no. Cause I mean the, the poem I sit beside the fire and think happens in the, in, uh, in the Ringo South. I was, I was looking for it when I looked for it to paste it into the slide here. I totally looked for it in the return of the King too, but it's not in the return of the King. It's in the Ringo South. It's before they leave Rivendell, uh, that he sings this song, um, uh, not on his return. Right. Um, so, but I don't th- remember any references to this poem when we got the Ringo South material or the Rivendell material in any of the earlier drafts. Um, yeah, no, James, I was making the same mistake. I can, and a, a couple of people, other people in the comments here were making that same mistake. Um, it, you know, it's such a, I mean, it's a departure song. Of course, it's when Frodo's departing. But I mean, this this sounds like this is such a retirement song, right? Um, from Bilbo that, uh, you know, Tony, as you were saying, this is a very much an old man song. Um, absolutely. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Does it anyway, somebody help me out and look it up. Tell me if it's there, uh, either in the treason of Isengard or in, if there's any reference to it in the treason of Isengard or in the Ringo South, uh, or sorry, in the Return of the Shadow, in the Return Goes South stuff, because the Ring Goes South. Yeah, Christopher, maybe you're right. Maybe that doesn't appear until the until Isengard, Treason of Isengard. Um, but um, okay, good, excellent. In the Treason of Isengard, it s- says it's not there. Perfect. Exactly. Oh, I love it when a theory uh, is well not proven. Let's not say proven, but. Uh, kept alive anyway, not disproven. Um, fantastic, James. Thank you. So excellent. Wait, oh, wait, 
correction. Oh, I was getting all excited. <laughs> it could work either way. I mean, if Sam's song were originally inspired by Bilbo's song, but like were like a, a sort of a despairing version of Bilbo's song, that's also kind of interesting. But I would kind of like it even better if it worked the other way around. Um, okay. <laughs> Christopher says at least the theory heard my voice before it died. Oh well. Oh well. Um Okay. Oh, so the original Okay. All right. So maybe maybe Bilbo's maybe a version of Bilbo's song did appear, did exist before Sam's song. In which case, in which case if that's true, and therefore, in Tolkien's imagination, when he's writing the first of the first version of Sam's song, um, he's imagining that Sam had heard Bilbo's song in Rivendell, right? Then it should go in that direction. And what we're getting in Sam's song is a despairing, like oh, practically post-apocalyptic version of Bilbo's song, right? Um, here's what Bilbo's song sounds like. Here's, uh, you know, so then you would have this sort of embittered repetition of I sit beside the fire and think, right? I sit beside the, I, I sit beside the fires of Mordor and despair, right? Is, uh, is Sam's song, um, which I, you know, I almost, you have to think that there's real bitterness there. Right. I mean, um, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, Tarlonio, that's a really good observation. Uh, Tarlonio is saying, uh, uh, I'm guessing the were hair rhyme in stanza two here is less strained in Tolkien's accent. I suspect so. I suspect the were and hair not rhyming is partly my American accent. But that said, um, I don't think it's a, perfect rhyme and it's to me really can rhyme is not um it's really important in this song it's not a, a central element at all uh the fact that we only get one rhyme one rhyming pair of sing one pair of single syllable rhymes in each stanza right in each quatrain that's a pretty low rhyme density to start with and then the fact that the two, that the rhyming couples, the, the two rhyming words in both of the first two stanzas are um, suboptimal, right? A little slantish. Again, totally acknowledge less slantish uh, in Tolkien's uh, British accent than in my American accent, but still, um, not. It's not B C scene green. Um, before and door, right? A go and no. Well, that's okay. Um, but again, it, it, it's not the rhyme is not what makes this song go. Uh, the weakness of the rhyme, I think, Tarlonio is actually. Um, I would actually tend to think um, important. Actually, an important element of this song. This is not a song that whose rhyme binds it together really tightly. Um, we've seen Tolkien do that. We know Tolkien can do that, and he often does do that, sometimes very tightly indeed. I'm thinking, of course, back to the uh, 
um, Lighters Leaf on Linden Tree poem, the uh, the original Baron and Luthien poem, uh, and how intricate the and uh, and uh, yeah, how 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 intricate, highly structured, and multisyllabic the rhyme scheme and repeat and and system of repeated words uh, and lines is in that poem. Right, this is almost to the opposite extreme of that. So Tarlonio, I think that that's a, that's a, uh, it seems to me a really good observation actually. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, oh, that's interesting, Bruce. Yeah. I'd missed that in the fourth stanza. We do get things in spring. Um, so we get two, uh, two rhymes, two pairs of rhymes in that fourth stanza. Though again, notice Bruce, even there, things and spring almost rhyme, right? Uh, nearly rhyme. Um, yeah, yeah, um, exactly. The extra S messes it up, right? Or at least throws it off a little bit. It's just, this is, um, I kind of think that the, the paucity of rhymes and the thrown offness of the rhymes, right? The weakness of the rhymes. I get, that seems to me a structural part of this poem. Anyway, we'll get more of a chance to talk about this poem later on. But suffice to say, the conclusion, you know, the big conclusion here, this is not a despairing poem. There's some wistfulness. Um, but notice his wistfulness is as much about the future as it is about the past, right? This is a song about mortality. Um, it's about remembering back to the things that you've seen and the fact that you have lost them and are losing them. Also that you're never going to get a chance. There's, you know, all the things that you're never going to get a chance to see a sense of like your place in the whole scope of time. Right. Um, uh, acknowledging all of those realities, um, but doing so relatively neutrally, um, yeah. James, that's a really wonderful observation. Um, James says, uh, in the story foreseen from Lorian, Tolkien's original impulse is that Sam took courage and did a thing of daring. Uh, and James goes on to say, it's hard to see how the draft poem in this vol- volume evolved from that impulse. All I can think, James, is, I mean, we know, we know from last, the rest of last week's discussion that, um, he was contemplating heroic action for Sam, even heroically sacrificial action from Sam uh, at the cracks of doom. So the plan is clearly to have Sam rising out of this despair, right? For this to be, this poem to be the nadir of Sam's spirit um, and to show uh, Sam's spirit rising from that. Um, Clearly, this is not the plan for, like, Sam's stable state throughout the end of the book, right? Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. So, that's the way I would think it would fit with Sam's daring. Um, but it, if that's the plan, it certainly seems to me to go a little too far in the other direction. And needless to say, I am such a huge fan. Sam's song in the Tower of... The published song uh, in the Tower of Kirith Ungol is, you know, one of my easily top three favorite short poems. Um, 
you know, in all of Tolkien's works. So yeah, yeah, no, I, I, uh, two thumbs up on the revision there. All right. Well, enough about poetry. Uh, let's go back and look at, uh, the trip to Mount Doom. The thing, of course, that's really striking about this, and Christopher Tolkien uh, mentions this, of course, numerous times, I think it's, it seems to me fairly remarkable that these chapters should be ones which just kind of rolled off, right? You know, we've seen times in the story where Tolkien is laboring and laboring and laboring um, and really kind of feeling his way in the dark and having to rewrite and rewrite. I mean, how many times did he rewrite uh, the, uh, you know, Parth Galen, right. in the breaking of the fellowships. I mean, it's, it's um, uh, yeah. And, and other places as well, obviously. Um, And then there have been stretches before where we've seen all of a sudden it smooths out and Christopher's like, yep, first draft is pretty much the final draft, right? It all just came the first time. Um, Most notably, of course, in my memory from the things we've discussed in the past is the Treebeard chapter, right? Uh, In the Two Towers. Um, And that, I have to say, when, you know, when we read that fact... It didn't surprise me. The Treebeard chapter has the feeling of a, um, it has the feeling of a, the way that it, uh, that it sort of, you know, unrolls, right? The way that this sort of, uh, delightful, somewhat rambling conversation between Treebeard and Merry and Pippin. Um, it has a, a kind of, it, it feels spontaneous. Now I say that knowing that it was spontaneous, right? It was totally unfair and crit ficky. But anyway, it's just to say when I heard, when I heard that I was not surprised when I heard that these chapters, um, uh, you know, these, these next two chapters after the Tower of Kirithungal, between the Tower of Kirithungal and Mount Doom, when I heard that those also um, came out in almost their final form from the very beginning, I was surprised, um, quite surprised, actually, that that happened, apart from some uh, uh, hesitations about names and things. Um, uh, so anyway, that I thought was... Um, uh, and I'm not sure I can explain why. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's because maybe it's like in itself a sort of uh, anti-critfic lesson, right? But uh, those chapters, the chapters as Frodo and Sam are going towards Mordor. Crossing Mordor, I should say. Um the the pain, the endurance, the plodding, um, the the way that Tolkien successfully, to me anyway, conveys that sense of near despair of like the combination of monotony and terror, right? The uh, the complete exhaustion and the thirst and the you know the descriptions that are long enough to convey the sense of how hard to endure that was still without making it unendurable to the reader, right. To go through it. Um, I find that a a remarkable 
accomplishment, and I find it three times as remarkable to discover that that all happened in one draft, right? I, I, I just... Um, the complexity of the effect that he achieved. Again, to me, like comparing it to the Treebeard chapter again, the Treebeard chapter is like the, the history of the ants emerge, right? And things about the ants emerge. Um, we're getting, it's mostly dialogue, right? Among the three characters, predominantly Treebeard tree carrying the story. But, but again, like the history, like what an ant is and the history of the ants kind of emerging as, you know, a character starting to talk and then he just keeps talking and talking and these things emerge. We've seen that happen a lot, right? That's, that's often happened like with Faramir, right? How Faramir's character, you know, came from this Gondorian captain who wouldn't shut up, right? He just, once he started talking, he just kept talking again, that kind of thing we've seen happening. Um, we've seen Tolkien's world building just kind of burst in upon him that way, especially in the mouth of one of his characters. Um, but what we get, the kind of description that we get, the um, the complex description of Frodo's spiritual state and everything, you know, that's very, very different. Um, and so I was surprised, surprised that um, um, that this emerged like that. Um, now I agree, Brian, and you know, Christopher kind of points towards this too that since he's been working and working at the Mount Doom thing. Um, you know, he's kind of already been rolling this around in his head for a while. So in that way, maybe it's less surprising, but to me, that's, um, you know, the fact that he saw that path ahead of him clearly, or rather the fact that he knew where he was headed doesn't necessarily, uh, make me less surprised that he found his way there so quickly and so easily. But anyway, um, but let's look at some of the passages that I thought were really interesting. Uh, some of the things that Christopher Tolkien pointed out, um, when he had finished. So this is right after Sam has told Frodo the whole story of the tower of Kirithungol and Shelob's lair and everything else. When he had finished, Frodo said nothing for some time, but took Sam's hand and pressed it at length. He stirred. So this is what comes of eavesdropping Sam, he said, but I wonder if you'll ever get back. Perhaps it would have been safer to have been turned into a toad, as Gandalf threatened. Do you remember that day, Sam, he said, and clipping the hedges under the window? I do, Mr. Frodo, and I bet things are in a nasty mess there now, with Athlobelia and her Cosimo begging your pardon. There'll be trouble if we ever get back. I shouldn't worry about that if I were you, said Frodo. We've got to go on again now. East, east, Sam, not west. I wonder how long it will be before we are caught and all this slinking and toiling will be over. Yeah, Cosimo, he's still Cosimo Sackville Baggins. He doesn't become Loth. He hasn't become Lotho yet, right? He was Cosimo back in the day when we were talking about the Sackville Bagginses back in the Return of the Shadow. Uh, still Cosimo. Going to become Lotho soonish, right? As we're headed towards proofs before too long. But um, uh, anyway... Um, I think that perhaps it would have been safer to have been turned into a toad as Gandalf threatened. That's on my short list of sentences I wish had not been cut from the Lord of the Rings. I really want Frodo to have said that uh, to Sam. Uh, and now in my in my own head, I will always imagine Frodo saying to Sam, perhaps it would have been safer for you have been turned into a toad. But of course, let's not lose what happens in the previous sentence. But I wonder if you'll ever get back. 
Notice, of course, what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I wonder if we'll ever get back. Frodo obviously sees his own death as an absolute certainty, right? The only thing that's even worth wondering about um, is whether or not Sam will get back. Um, And uh, Steve and I agree. It's a little bit odd um, that uh, Frodo's the one getting um, uh, nostalgic here, right? That he's the one, you know, casting his mind back uh, to Bag End. Um, Do you remember that day and clipping the edges under the window? Notice that we can still see a difference, right, between Frodo's recollections and Sam's. Um, Sam is immediately thinking about the present and, by implication, what we're going to have to... um, uh, what we're going to have to, uh, to do when, you know, he's thinking of all the problems, right? There'll be trouble if, if we, if, if ever we get back, but it's going to be, it's, it's going to be, we're going to have a heck of a time fixing things back in the Shire. Um, Frodo is wondering if Sam will ever get back. Sam's already thinking ahead to how the, how they're going to have to deal with the issues, right? When they get back. Um, so we can already clearly see that we, we can still see the difference there, though, again, it is interesting that Frodo is doing the the recollecting. That turning of his mind, right? East, east, Sam, not west. Um, the way that Tolkien seems to be sort of showing Frodo asserting his resolution. Uh, to me, the thing that is sort of extra poignant about Frodo being the one uh, reminiscing is that uh, Tolkien seems to be dramatizing, um, really drawing attention to at least um, Frodo's deliberate turning away. Right, he 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 indulges in these memories and then shuts it out. East, east, not west. Right? No, no. Let's let's forget about the west. Um, and then he thinks about the East, and then he immediately goes into despair, right? Um, I wonder how long it will be before we're caught, and all this slinking and toiling will be over. Um, yeah. Okay. Really interesting reference here. When Sam comes back and discovers Frodo and Gollum nearby... At that moment, he thought he caught a glimpse of a black form or shadow flitting among the stones above, near to Frodo's hiding. He was almost back to his master before he was sure. There was Gollum indeed. If his will could have given him strength for a great bound, Sam would have sprung straight on his enemy's back. But at that moment, Gollum became aware of him and looked back. Sam had a quick glimpse of two pale eyes now filled with a mad, malevolent light. And then Gollum, jumping from rock to rock with great agility, fled away onto the ridge and vanished over its crest. Um, yeah, good. Uh, going back for a second, Christopher says it's also interesting to see how uh, how this will evolve as Tolkien gets a better sense of the effect of the ring on Frodo's ability to remember anything from the world beyond Mordor. I agree, Christopher. One of the things that I think that we can see uh, kind of changing and maturing as Tolkien uh, goes through this section and, and, and revises um, is an even greater sense of the the 
the way that the power of the ring affects Frodo. But anyway, with Gollum here, uh, we get more here than we got in the uh, in the published text about this similar scene. In particular, the one thing which is to me very striking, we get Sam's desire for revenge, whereas in the you know his, you know his uh, almost springing upon Gollum's back and like he would have done if he possibly could have, right? But he couldn't quite jump that far. Um, but to me, the most important and interesting thing is the mad malevolent light in the two pale eyes of Gollum, right? This overt acknowledgement that Gollum's over the edge now, right? Um, what has happened since his, since he betrayed Frodo? Um, Gollum has been broken by that in some sense. This is, seems, now we don't get this, right? We don't get a mad malevolent light in Gollum's eyes. Um, we don't get this close of a face-to-face encounter uh, between Sam and Gollum here. Um, but I would point to this as an example. I would at least suggest this as an example, being a little bit more tentative, but, but it seems to me to work. Um, remember Christopher's oft-repeated injunction that just because Tolkien takes something out doesn't mean he necessarily stopped thinking it, right? Um, and that seems to me, this seems to me a really good candidate here. Um, we don't get that description in the published text. What we get in the published text is fairly typical. When we see Tolkien revising a passage, he often takes stuff out, right? He often says less and thereby makes the passage more effective. That, you know, his his impulse when he's writing his first draft is to say more and to describe more. And frequently we have seen him go back in revision and cut things and describe it in fewer words and to, 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 to say less explicit, to say less and imply more, right? And leave more to our imagination. This seems to me like one of the, I mean, well, this is clearly an example of such a thing where he takes a very similar thing, uh, a very similar scene, and he revises it by removing uh, many of the more explicit things, right? But again, as Christopher warns, I don't think, or at least I'm certainly not convinced, that Tolkien really changed his uh, his mind about this. I suspect that this is a little glimpse into what how Tolkien is really imagining Gollum and continues to imagine Gollum. Um, Gollum is Gollum is mad. Um, he has been driven over the edge. Uh, this is uh, uh, he is as Tolkien says in his letters. He's 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 past the point of no return now. Gollum is, um, and he's not like entirely irrational. He, he, he's still capable of, you know, of speech and, you know, of, of begging for mercy and things like that, right? As we'll see. But the fact that he is now completely consumed, uh, and mastered by this, uh, malevolence within him such, so that he is now wholly mad, um, is, uh, I think important. And as I say, I suspect perfectly applicable in uh, the published text as well. All right. This was really interesting. One of the few passages in this chapter which uh, he changed significantly. 
Christopher says, Another slight difference in the original text follows Frodo's words to Sam on the morning on which they left the road and turned south towards Mount Doom. I can't manage it, Sam. It is such a weight to carry. Such a weight. That's from The Return of the King. So then we have, Sam knew what he meant, but seeking for some encouragement amid despair, he answered, Well, Mr. Frodo, why not lighten the load a bit? We're going that way, as straight as we can make, he pointed to the mountain. No good taking anything we're not sure to need. Like a child, distracted from its trouble by some game of make-believe, Frodo considered his words seriously for a moment. Then, of course, he said, leave everything behind we don't want. Travel light, that's the thing, Sam. He picked up his orc shield and flung it away, and threw his helmet after it, and undoing his heavy belt, cast it and the sword and sheath with it, clattering on the ground. Even his grey cloak he threw away. Sam looked at him with pity. This was struck out immediately, and replaced by the text of The Return of the King, in which Sam suggests that he should bear the ring for a while. But neither in the text B, nor in the fair copy C, is there mention of the file of Galadriel, or of the little box that she gave to Sam. Okay. Um, So... Yeah, that's interesting. Matthew says that Frodo seems a bit fey in this draft. Yes, and of course we've seen Sam uh, Frodo fey before. To me, the m- major difference here is that Frodo, ev- so that that Sam decides to be sort of light, right, and pl- to sort of um, say this playfully, right. Um, yeah, James, this is way less intense than in the published text. That Frodo has enough spirit to kind of play along with the game of make-believe, right? Travel light, that's the thing, Sam, right? Um, this gets back to, um, uh, Christopher, what you were saying before about the um, increased intensity right of the of the ring in the published text frodo does not have the he doesn't have any juice left over for joking right um he is certainly not going to be able to uh, um he's not going to be able to muster the lightheartedness um that we see here um the weariness, the, and, and I, you know, I get one of the bigger pictures that I think that we can see is the one thing which seems to, you know, uh, the, 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 these, these chapters, you know, come out almost fully formed. The, one of the biggest elements in them that it seems that Tolkien didn't see right away and only came to see as he was going through is the extent to which the ring just simply bears Frodo down. Right at the end, it's not even so much about temptation, right? Like it's not necessarily about temptation to his will. It's just about weariness. He is born down. He cannot bear it anymore. Um, you know, he's the ring bearer, right? And just can't bear it any longer. Um, the way in which the ring just grinds him down like that seems to be something that Tolkien kind of came to more slowly here. Oop. Okay. At the end of the chapter, 
After the words, down like lashing whips fell a torrent of black rain, the first text moves at once to, well, this is the end, Sam, said a voice by his side. Here my father wrote in the margin soon after, put in here, or in next chapter, vision of the cloud rack out of Barad-dûr, growing to shape of a vast black man that stretches out a menacing, unavailing arm and is blown away. The word man is very unclear, but I cannot see how else it could be read. Later at this point in the manuscript, he wrote, Fall of ringwraiths, with a mark of insertion, and the passage, and into the heart of the storm, with a cry that pierced all other sounds, appears in C. That is, the description of the fall of the ringwraiths. Lastly, Sam's feelings were thus described in B. If he felt anything in all that ruin of the world, it was perhaps most of all a great joy to be servant once again, and know his master, added, and surrender to him the leadership. This was repeated in C, but rejected and replaced by the reading of The Return of the King. In Frodo's final words, he did not, in the original text, speak of forgiving Gollum. That last point is uh, particularly interesting, isn't it? Um, the forgiveness point is, you know, one which I think is... Uh, kind of one that we sort of take, I don't know, that seems to me one of those things I would have guessed, you know, was a really crucial element, right? Really formative element there that Frodo, because of course in the published text, after Frodo uh, is, is released from the power of the ring, we can see his release in large part by his forgiveness, Right. His generosity of spirit, all of those things. Um, interesting to me that that was a later edition, right? That Tolkien is sort of seeing as he goes along what it meant for Frodo to be released. Um, but um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, good, Christopher. Um, in Sam's, the first draft of Sam's songs too, that desire to be in the in the role of answering the call of Frodo, right? Yes, he imagines himself, um, his happiness in imagining himself and Frodo is definitely with Frodo as the master and him as his servant, right? And this sense of like, all is right with the world again, really interesting that the reassertion of their, of the normal direction of their relationship, right? Frodo is now the dear master that he loved. We still get that in the published text, right? This here, there was the dear master, um, you know, of the old days again. Um, yes, but the emphasis on Sam's joy to not be in charge anymore, how unnatural he felt that to be, of course, back during the, um, Choices of Master Samwise chapter, right? He's not the one who should be making the decisions. He's not the one who should be leading the way. He had to do it, um, but now he doesn't anymore, and, and everything is right with the world again. Another one of those elements that I'm suspecting probably is not rejected by Tolkien, but not s stated explicitly uh, in the published text. Um... Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, and Bruce, you're right. That is so not modern American. You are absolutely right. But I, I also uh, find it kind of delightful there, too. Um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, 
so Frodo's non-forgiveness, Sam's delight in being a servant again. Um, interesting that initially he's thinking of that shape with the with the arm. He didn't leave that, right? We still get that, but you'll remember where that happened was when we shift back to Gandalf's point of view, right? When we from the point of view of the um, the armies before the Black Gate in the midst of the battle, when they see the towers fall, they see the shadow rise up, right? So from a distance, you can see that. That shift to keep that idea, to keep that concept, um, really the same image, but to shift it from Frodo and Sam's viewpoint here from Mount Doom. Um, I really love that change. To me, the effect of that change is to emphasize they're aware of what's happened, but they're in the middle of the destruction, right? The very heart of it. And all they, you know, are is they feel like it's the end of all things. They feel like the world is coming to an end all around them and that they're certainly going to die. And Sam spends what he clearly believes to be his final moments, merely taking joy in the salvation of his master, right? In the restoration of his master. Um, to then be able to um, re-include that image, but only seen from a, like seen from, like, it's almost like seeing it from Gandalf's eyes, right? Here's what Gandalf sees uh, when he, uh, when he is watching this. Um, from a distance, we can see from the outside the significance of things, and that really does seem to belong there. Um, yes, I agree, John. Uh, Sam Gamgee is the consummate Hufflepuff. Totally agree. Uh, uh, no question that Sam would be would be a Hufflepuff, the greatest Hufflepuff ever. Um, yeah. Now, Christopher, I agree that the emphasis changes in the published text. Um, I, I think he probably is still joyful that he's not a servant, but the shift that we get is essentially away from Sam thinking about himself to Sam thinking about Frodo, and that feels more right. I agree. Um, yeah, I do think um, I do think that the, the image, the shadow that's blown away, is meant to be at least a kind of representation, um, a kind of conceptualization of uh, Sauron himself. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yes, Kate, exactly. The one best suited uh, to be the mayor of the Shire is the one who takes chief delight in being a servant once again. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's um, there's like the Tolkien political manifesto in uh, in in a nutshell there. Absolutely. OK. All right. I don't know about you, but here's where my mind was blown. Gwai here, the Windlord, had, of course, appeared often before this in in The Lord of the Rings. For long, Gwaiwar, but becoming Gwaihir in the course of the writing of the White Rider. In the Quenta Silmarillion, Gwaiwar had been one of the three eagles that came to Angban for the rescue of Baron and Luthien. The earliest form of that passage reads, Thorondor led them, and the others were Landreval, Widewing, and Gwaiwar, his vassal. Um, and we talked about this when we talked about Volume 5, when we were reading The Lost Road and looking at the 1937 Quentin Silmarillion material. We were noticing with delight there that it was Landreval and 
Guaiwar by name, um, the same two eagles who uh, picked up Frodo and, you know, that like he was recycling the two eagles that picked up Baron and Luthien. So again, with the very close Baron and Luthien uh, parallels, not only were they both rescued by eagles uh, from, you know, the, the, the heart of the realm of the evil one, but they were rescued by the same eagles. Right. But of course, then it, um, it gets better. The following text also belonging to 1937 has Thorondor was their leader, and with him were his mightiest vassals, Wide-Winged Tlandraval and Gwaiwar, Lord of the Wind. So Gwaihir, the Wind Lord, by name, is there with Tlandraval, right? Okay. In a revision of the passage, so in a revision of the Silmarillion passage, which can be dated to 1951, after he's finished writing The Lord of the Rings... And Gwaihir and Landreval have come to pick up Frodo and Sam. After he's written about Gwaihir and Landreval picking up Frodo and Sam, he goes back to the Silmarillion material. Gwaiwar was changed to Gwaihir. As I have noticed in Volume 5, the names of the vassals of Thorondor were suppressed in the published Silmarillion on account of the present passage in The Return of the King. Notice Christopher's passive voice here. They were suppressed in the published Silmarillion. Um, Names were suppressed by him, right? This is Christopher very indirectly admitting that he screwed up in the published Silmarillion. Christopher, so I will read this sentence in the active voice. I have noticed, I, Christopher Tolkien... Uh, observed indirectly that I suppressed the names of the other eagles, of the other vassals of Thorondor in the published Silmarillion on account of the present passage in The Return of the King. At the time he published the Silmarillion, Christopher Tolkien said, ooh, so the names of those other two eagles that came with Thorondor were Landreval and and Gwaihir. But I'm going to leave out those names because he reused those names. Later on. So Christopher's initial thought when he published the published Silmarillion was that Tolkien was recycling. Right? He had recycled those two eagles, and so they're obviously they're not the same eagles, right? And so therefore, because obviously they're not the same eagles, and Tolkien recycled the names um uh in uh in the Return of the King, I'd better suppress them in in the published Silmarillion. But this was certainly mistaken. Sorry, let me rephrase. But I was certainly mistaken. It is clear that my father deliberately repeated the names. As in so many other cases in The Lord of the Rings, he took the name Gwaiwar for the great eagle friend of Gandalf from the Silmarillion. And when Gwaihir replaced Gwaiwar in The Lord of the Rings, he made the same change to the eagle's name in the Silmarillion. Now he took also Hlandraval to be the name of Gwaihir's brother and added a new name, Meneldor. Um, yeah, no, James, I'm not suggesting we get all outraged at, Chris, at Christopher Tolkien for this honest mistake, and he's owning it, though admittedly in the passive voice. Totally fine. Um, 
Yeah, Raymond Burns says it's a good thing Christopher didn't do the same with Gorfindel. Yeah, yeah, sure is a good thing. Um, it's the same eagles. It's the same. That was this is a mind blowing thing, right? In Tolkien's mind, Gwaihir and Landreval, who pick up Frodo and Sam, are the same two eagles who picked up Baron and Luthien. The eagles of the Misty Mountains, friend of Gandalf, the eagles, the eucatastrophic eagles, these are the very same birds who have been the agents of eucatastrophe for millennia. Gwaihir the Windlord is thousands and thousands of years old, right? My primary response to this passage was, where's Thorondor? (laughs) It's true, he's still around, right? Did Thorondor meet some untimely end? Um, Here is the conclusion that I feel compelled to come to as a result of this. The intervention. I've talked before about how the intervention of the eagles always has an element. It's not just that like the eagles are like feathered eucatastrophe, uh, but that they they are they are like, and they are more than just like. They're they're not just similar to. They are an instance of the nearly direct, perhaps direct, intervention of the Valar, and of Manway in particular, in Middle-earth, right? So they're not just a eucatastrophe. They are a eucatastrophe. They are emissaries of the Valar bringing eucatastrophe to Middle-earth. The eagles are the one of the greatest examples uh, of, you know, the... Do the Valar still interact with Middle-earth at all? Are they still paying attention at all? Heck yeah. Look at the eagles. That concept, which I've always kind of held, is to me magnificently increased by the knowledge that Gwaihir has been around for millennia. Right? He's clearly not a normal bird. Right? He is not an animal at all. He is something quite different. Um, So, um, yeah, yeah. Um, It makes, it makes it fairly clear that the eagles are something like angelic spirits, are something like embodied Maiar, rather than um, actual birds. And yes, for those of you, Kate, I absolutely agree. Um, No wonder he wanted to redo The Hobbit. Yes, exactly. Um, uh, Yeah, no wonder. Um, Yeah, yeah. The way that, um, yes, he really has gone in the complete opposite direction of eagles are not kindly birds. They might still not be kindly, exactly. They're not homely, Right, uh, the Eagle's Eyrie is definitively not a homely home. Indeed, it's uh, or a homely house. Uh, it's indeed 
directly contrasted, right, with the queer lodgings title um, uh, in The Hobbit to to the uh, um, uh, to to Rivendell to the last homely house. But um, anyway, yeah, I, this is um, yeah good. Arthur's remembering, of course, the vultures from Morgoth, right, or from Sauron. That makes a lot of sense, more sense too. Right to want to be having these vultures, which would be the opposite number of the eagles. Um, yes, yes, um, yeah, yeah. So, really, does put into a whole new perspective the what I have always felt to be rather silly arguments that uh, it's a plot hole of the Lord of the Rings that they didn't just fly the eagles all the way to Mount Doom, right? Um, <laughs> when you think about who the... Do you think the eagles are there to be a taxi service? Really? You're going to go to Gwaihir the Windlord, uh, who has been, you know, looking out over Middle-earth for millennia and be like, surely you can just give me a ride, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I just... Arthur, I did joking or not. I actually think that's that's valid. The vultures parallel. Um, it really puts into context the why he was thinking of vultures, um, you know, and what it means, therefore, for them to be the direct opposite. In fact, even remember when there was that brief concept that the vultures were not merely the steeds of the ringwraiths, but like they were the ringwraiths. Um, that the ring race could take the form of vultures. Um, again, that makes all kinds of sense in that, that they would be in that sense, the opposite numbers, they would be to Sauron what the Eagles were like to Manway. Right. Yeah. I mean, that actually seems to kind of worked. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Exactly. Yeah, that's always been my argument. Um, you know, the question, why don't the eagles just intervene and, and, and fly them straight to, to Mordor becomes almost exactly saying the same thing. Why doesn't just why doesn't Iluvatar just snap his fingers, overthrow Sauron and fix everything immediately? Yeah, no, exactly. It's asking almost precisely the same question. And that's always been my primary argument, apart from the fact that it would be a really dull and boring story. Um, uh, but yes, exactly. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Okay. Anyway, so there was my, uh, uh, I always like it when Christopher admits that he was wrong. Okay. This was a funny little passage, but I think is a really, it, it jumped out to me because it, it was a, a really wonderful illustration of a point I was trying to make last night in exploring the Lord of the Rings. So I, I, I wanted to talk about this briefly. If March, so you're talking about how long the hobbits are asleep and it starts off. They've been asleep. It's the third day of the new of the fourth age. So they have only been asleep for like three days. Very biblical. If March 23rd was New Year's Day, the 28th was the fourth day of the New Year in Gondor, not the third. And my father wrote fourth above third without, however, striking out third. In pencil, he wrote seventh 
against this, and the last day above the 28th day, although this would give 31 days to the month. His reason for this is obscurely indicated by a note in the margin, more time required for gathering of goods, uh, say the 7th. Okay. In the fair copy, B, uh, fair copy B, as written, Gandalf said, the 7th of the new year, or if you like, the last day of March in the Shire Reckoning. This was changed later to the 14th of the new year and the 6th day of April in the Shire Reckoning. Even allowing 31 days to the month, the 6th of April would be the 13th day of the new year, and 6th was afterward changed to 7th and finally to 8th, as in the return of the king. I do not know precisely what considerations impelled my father so greatly to prolong the time during which Sam and Frodo lay asleep. Um, so we have Christopher Tolkien being puzzled, like, why is their comatose state stretched out from three days um, to finally, what, 14, 15 days uh, that they're asleep there in Ithilien before they come around? Um I, uh, the only hint we get as to why he continues to extend and extend and extend their sleep is that one note in the margin about, um, where was it? More time required for gathering or whatever, something delivery, maybe who knows of goods. Um, I said last night in exploring the Lord of the Rings, when we were talking about the last homely house and I was talking about the differences between the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings, um, you know, many, many differences there. But one of the ones in with, that I was particularly pointing to um, was about the level of world building that goes like Tolkien is just thinking in entirely different ways. Um, he's not thinking in terms really of building a thorough and consistent world in The Hobbit. This is not that kind of story. Um, oh, yeah, we were talking about the clothes. Frodo woke up to this really nice new set of clothes in Rivendell. And we were talking about what a big deal a brand new set of clothes was in a pre-industrial world. And there is really a sense of, like, beautiful new clothes, not only beautiful new clothes, but elf-made clothes. Um, and then someone was recalling how Bilbo had whole rooms uh, uh, devoted to clothes in The Hobbit, to which there are two answers. One, this means Bilbo is super rich, which I think is perfectly relevant. But the second thing is that it's in The Hobbit, right? And Tolkien is not thinking carefully through, you know, building a consistent pre-industrial world uh, in The Hobbit. He's just not. Bilbo also has a clock on his mantelpiece. But here is a wonderful illustration of how Tolkien is, how his mindset has shifted, right? He can toss off things like whole rooms devoted to clothes, and you haven't dusted, uh, you know, the mantelpiece, or you would have found the note that we left under the clock, right? That's, you know, uh, not at all. Um, how to, but now Tolkien thinks very differently. Now we see him changing the whole chronology, right? And keeping Frodo and Sam in their coma. Why? Because goods on wagons have to get from Minas Tirith to Cormallon in time for them to have a feast, right? He's worried about this. He's clearly worried about this. Remember, Mary's riding with the wagons too, so we need Mary to be present, and we need the feast to be able to be delivered. They're going to have a big old feast, right? You don't just throw a feast in the middle of the forest on soldiers' rations, right? Which they would have brought with them. So no way, man. We need fresh supplies from the city. That can only uh, that can only set out after news reaches them. Now, even if the eagles bring the news, which they do, so that's relatively efficient. 
Again, we have to collect supplies. We have to put them in wagons, which travel very slowly. And then we've got to get the wagons from Minas Tirith all the way up to the field of Cormel. And it's going to take days. And then they're going to have to, they're going to have to unpack and they're going to have to set up and they're going to have to cook. Right. So come on, you know, this is going to be, um, uh, there's going to be lots of, uh, of, of time that's going to pass here. Uh, and so we've got to keep them in a coma longer and longer and longer until it's finally like 15 days. Um, Tolkien was really concerned about all of these things. And I think we, we can see, we, it was just, it's a small point, um, but you can see the kinds of thing he's worried about here. He is not willing just to snap, you know, to like snap his fingers and suddenly whip up a feast. Right. Um, He's got to work out the details and he's got to work out the, uh, he's got to work out the, um, the, the, the logistics of all of this. Um, Yeah. Um, and Brian, yes, I agree. Another element of this is that it is interesting that having the celebrations be fully prepared is so important. Like they can't wake up a week before the feast arrives, right? We can't, we, we can't have that, right? The whole, the full ceremonial needs to be prepared before they awake for them to emerge in the pump, right? For them to emerge uh, and, you know, be ready to receive, be received by Aragorn and then have the full feast. That's really, that's how it has to happen, right? Even if we have to uh, put them in a deeper coma. Um, Anyway. Okay. Um, Yes, exactly, Sharon. We don't have dwarves showing up with, uh, uh, you know, pulling... Uh, out vials as big as themselves, right? Which they thought to bring with them on their journey when they didn't bring any weapons. Exactly. That's just, we're not, we are very far from that world. Uh, again, and we've seen lots of examples of this, obviously, but, um, uh, but anyway, it, to me, this was another interesting example. And again, I'm not, I don't know, maybe I'm being, uh, flippant about this and he's probably thought about it more than I have, but, um, I don't understand exactly why Frodo is, or Frodo, kind of like Frodo, why Christopher Tolkien is so concerned about the reasons that impelled his father. His father gave his reason, right? He got it. We got to get the supplies there. Um, what's the problem with that? I'm not sure. But anyway. Um, yeah. Um, okay. But for all that he wanted the ceremonials, he had a little bit of a hard time figuring out how to manage some of it, right? And then Aragorn stood up and all the host rose and they passed to a pavilion made ready there to eat and drink and make merry. But as Sam and Frodo stepped down with Aragorn from the throne, Sam caught sight of a small man-at-arms as it seemed in the silver and sable of the guards of the king. But he was small and he wondered what such a boy was doing in such an army. Then suddenly he exclaimed, why, look, Mr. Frodo, look here. Bless me if it's not Pippin, Mr. Peregrine Took, I should say. Bless me, but I can see there's more tales than ours to hear. It'll take weeks before we get it all right. Yes, said Frodo. I can see myself locked up in a room somewhere making notes for days, or Bilbo will be bitterly disappointed. And so they passed to the feast, and at a sign from Aragorn, Pippin went with them. Um, okay, I re- so it's the the initial recognition of Pippin, 
uh, is the thing that he keeps pushing back, right? This first impulse is to have it be right there when they first meet Strider again, right? When they're, when they, when they meet Aragorn as King, he looks over and there's Pippin, right? Um, and then he ditches that and says, okay, no, 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 no. When they now get taken back to their pavilion and they get dressed up in their fancy clothes, right? They're waited on by a valet who turns out to be Pippin, right? Though it's a bit strange that they don't recognize him sooner. Like, he fully dresses them, and then they're like, wait a second, it's Pippin all along. And that seems a little bit uh, uh, a little bit hard to believe. And then they, they move it back to during, the, he moves it back to during the feast itself, right? And he sees him bearing the cup, and he's like, hey, Pippin. Which, of course, is where it finally stays in The Return of the King. Um, um, Yes, and Kate agreed. And yet another moment in which humor is removed from Frodo. Of course, this line, the, the, the funny line about locking himself up in a room and making notes, or Bilbo will be disappointed, gets given to Pippin, of course, in the final, in the final draft. Um, um, yeah, and James, you're right. Pippin had grown, so it's which is part of the joke, right? They don't recognize him right away, but still, I mean, if he's dressing them, you'd think they would they would have recognized him. Um, so I'm a little bit interested in the timing and in ultimately how he keeps pushing it back and back. Um, my suspicion is that uh, the there are kind of two different one one of the things that this drew my attention to is that there are kind of two different kinds of reunion right two different experiences that Frodo and Sam have on the field of Cormallon when they awake right one is the sort of the presentation of the full glory of their deliverance and of their success right the meeting with the king, Aragorn being crowned, or he's not yet crowned, but, you know, sitting there on his throne is, I mean, that's a result of their success, right? Um, Here is the new world that you have helped create. Them being introduced and being rejoiced by that world, rejoicing in that world, um, with that world, the song of praise, right? This is the one register, on which they are being brought back into the world. They're being reintroduced to the new world that they have helped to enable, right? And then we get the personal reunions, right? The personal uh, restorations. Merry and Pippin, first and foremost, and then Legolas and Gimli also, right? Um, The recognition of Gandalf and Gandalf coming back from the dead gets kind of lost in the earlier one, right? Um, But... uh, but I think it seems to me I like the impulse that Tolkien had to, to push it back, right? To not mingle those two things, to not have the recognition of Pippin um, and the acknowledgement that there's more tales uh, to tell than their own. Um, to not have that interrupt the, you know, Aglario praise them with great praise portion uh, of the uh, of the field of Cormallon. Um yeah okay mm. 
it's getting late, but I think we can do the story for scene from Cormallon. Uh Another plot outline. We haven't gotten a plot outline in a while. And remember from the earlier plot lines, he was very sketchy on the homeward journey, right? We, we got a couple of plot outlines where he was... Um, thinking about like them returning to Isengard on their way back and returning to the Shire. Um, but very little detail. Gimli explains how Pippin was saved. Next scene. The host sets out from Kyr Andros and reads read in the ships and passes into Gondor. Scene shifts to Merry and to Faramir and Eowyn. Return of King Alessar, his crowning, his judgments of Berethel. The hobbits wait, for there is to be a wedding. Elrond and Galadriel and Celeborn come and bring Finduilas, who's just been invented, I think. The wedding of Aragorn and Finduilas. Also, Faramir and Eowyn. The end of the Third Age is presaged. What the rings had done, their power waned. Galadriel and Elrond prepare to depart. The hobbits return with Eomir to the funeral of Theoden and then on through the Gap of Rohan with something and the Dunedain. The Dunedain. They come on Saruman and he is pardoned? They come to Rivendell and see Bilbo. Bilbo gives him Sting and the coat, but he is getting old. They come back to the Shire, added in margin via Bree, pick up Pony. I love that Bill gets uh, 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 shoved in there. And drive out Cosimo Sackville Baggins. Lobelia is dead. She had a fit in something or other. Sam replants the trees. Frodo goes back to Bag End. All is quiet for a year or two. And then one day Frodo takes Sam for a walking tour to the woody end. And behold, there are there go many elves. Frodo rides to the havens and says farewell to Bilbo. End of the Third Age, Sam's book. Okay. Um, lots of interesting things here. First of all, just to clarify, Christopher spent a long time explaining this afterwards, and I'm convinced. I believe him. Um, his theory... So says farewell to Bilbo at the end would seem to suggest that his plan here was that Frodo does not sail away uh, from the Grey Havens with the rest of them. Um, that would be inconsistent with every other projected ending of the story that that he's had. Christopher's theory is that this passage, which is jotted down really, really these notes which are jotted down really, really fast by Tolkien, that he just screwed up, that he meant says farewell to Sam. And he wrote, says farewell to Bilbo. Um, that Tolkien made a mistake writing that seems to me very, I can believe that in a heartbeat. Um, and given the thing, you know, so it's, it's either that or he is making a serious change, right? Making a serious decision there. And I don't believe that. I don't believe that. I think... You know, Matthew's asking, is it possible that Bilbo was the one meant to stay behind? I find that hard to believe. Maybe. Maybe. But I don't think so. I don't think so. Um, yes, Stephen, you're right. The, we see... Notice it, it, we have a very crude concept of the scouring of the Shire. We know there's 
trouble, right? And Cosimo Sackville Baggins is uh, at the heart of it, right? Um, or at least deep in. We saw that foreshadowed in Sam's comment to Frodo earlier on, right? Um, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a lot of nuisance clearing up the problems that Cosimo Sackville Baggins has caused. Um, Sharky, clearly not there yet. Saruman is being pardoned. Now, he's not sure about that word. Again, this is a, this passage is really, really hard to read. But the, it's, the idea that Saruman is possibly being pardoned is an interesting one. Remember, we had that kind of funny conversation between... Not kind of funny, like actually humorous conversation um, between Gandalf and Saruman uh, in one of the earlier... Um, uh, plot notes, plot projections. So interesting that he's thinking about pardoning him and, and, and kind of getting him out of the way there. Um, so the idea that things are going to have to be set to rights in the Shire is there, but it certainly hasn't reached its full sense yet. And then, of course, we get Finduilas, right? Um Once again, do we need more evidence about, of how much Tolkien loved the Turin Turambar story? Um, and the character of Finduilas, he really wants to remember um, in The Lord of the Rings. So Finduilas is going to be the name of the newly invented daughter of Elrond who's going to marry Aragorn. But then we, we're going we're gonna to shift her. And when the warden looked out from his window and saw Faramir and Eowyn finding in the sight a lightning of his care, it is said, for it had been reported to him that the Lord Aragorn had said, If she wakes to despair, then she will die, unless other healing comes, which I cannot give. The blue mantle set with stars, which Faramir gave to Eowyn when the weather turned cold, is in A, said to have been made for his mother Emeril, changed in the act of writing to Rothanel of Amroth who died untimely. This name survived into the following manuscript B, where it was changed to Finduilas, which is, of course, what it remains uh, in the published text. So Finduilas becomes Faramir's mother, who still dies untimely, right? Finduilas dies young every time. This is a, I would not name my daughter Finduilas, if, if only for that reason. Um, but we can see like, right here in this one section, right? The fact that he, deciding against naming the daughter of Elrond Finduilas, decides to shift it um, to, uh, uh, r r right to like the, the nearest available female character, right? Um, Faramir's mom, who's he, whom he's remembering right here in this very same chapter, um, uh, is uh, one of the one of the most fun examples of Tolkien's adhering to a name that he really wants to use. Um, yeah. Let's see. Is Aragorn there in this version when they meet Saruman? Well, it's impossible to tell from the outline. We'll see what happens when we get there. Um, oh, yes, Matthew, you're right. The, the version... Of Fendula, when Fendulas marries Aragorn is the only version that isn't tragic at all, right? Yeah, you're right. You're right. Fendulas was this close 
to getting a happy ending for the first time. Yeah. Oh, well. Okay. This was a passage that, dis- that surprised me. When Faramir, surrendering his office as the last steward of Gondor, gave Aragorn the white rod, Aragorn did not return it to him. He said nothing to Faramir at this point, and Faramir at once proclaimed, Men of Gondor, you have no longer a steward, for behold, one is one has returned to claim the kinship, the kingship, not the kinship, the kingship at last. Here is Aragorn, son of Amathorn, Arathorn, boy. I'm getting tired. I'm misreading words all over the place. Among Aragorn's titles, Faramir names him Chieftain of the Dúnedain of the North, and does not name him Bearer of the Star of the North. After the description of the crown, there follows, and Aragorn knelt, and Faramir upon the one hand and upon the other, Prince Imrahil, set the crown upon his head, and then Gandalf laid his hand on Aragorn's shoulder and bade him arise. And when he arose, all that beheld him gazed in silence, and a light was about him. And then Faramir said, Behold the king, and he broke his white rod. Man, he breaks the rod of the steward like over his knee. Uh, that's uh, that's kind of amazing. Yeah, his staff is broken, James, exactly. Um I feel like I can fit this stage of the story of Aragorn's kingship into the sort of the narrative thread that we have seen. Not, of course, the narrative thread of the story, but the narrative thread of the development of the story. Like, the story of the story of Aragorn's kingship, right? Of course, you'll remember that um, Aragorn uh, was not... you know, the, 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 the idea of him being the destined king, um, you know, the lost king returned, uh, was a relatively late developing plot line. Um, he was going to be democratically elected king, right? Um, uh, rather than being appointed king, um, you know, by a strange woman lying in a pond or something. Um and remember back in uh back in the early days Bor- that was going to alienate Boromir and he was going to turn rebel and side with Saruman right Boromir was because he got passed over for the kingship um anyhow right exactly James when Tolkien decided that you don't vote for kings and that he should in fact be embraced by the people of Gondor as the long lost king returned um but but again remember there was politics at the roots of this, right? His, we're still, I think, one step shy of Aragorn being like the prophesied king returning, you know, Aragorn's return being a full catastrophe to the city. Um, you know, of there being prophecies of the returning king and all this kind of thing um, that he is fulfilling because this sounds fairly political, right? Faramir, there could be division of loyalty, especially since so many people are so loyal to Faramir. So it would make sense politically for Faramir and Aragorn, both of them to agree, we need to make it really clear who's in charge here, right? I need, I, Faramir, need, need to hand over my office and I'm going to break my rod, 
right, to show I am abdicating absolutely any claim to any rule or authority of any kind, right? Let us have no question about the succession and no faction in Gondor rallying around me as the heir of my father, the previous Lord of Minas Tirith, right? So, um, and then, of course, there's another potential rival, which, which is Prince Imrahil. He's a prince, after all, right? He has some serious authority and standing uh, in Gondor. Obviously, the most powerful of all of the lords of Gondor outside of, you know, the family of the stewards. Um, that's clear from the role that he plays in the leadership of the men of Gondor. So, again, it makes perfect political sense for him to have the crown put on his head by Imrahil and Faramir, one on either side uh, of the crown, right? Symbolically having them say, we absolutely support Aragorn, right? Our influence and our uh, uh, support goes 100% to Aragorn. So the whole ceremony seems as conceived here first to be primarily a political symbol. Right. To make there be no question how things are going to be in Gondor. Um, And again, that makes a lot of sense when we think back to where this kind of came from. The shift that he makes. Right. The insistence, Aragorn's insistence on on maintaining and elevating Faramir rather than Faramir's abdication. Um, Aragorn's insistence that the um, his crowning should not be a political statement relevant to modern Gondorian politics, but rather should be a symbolic recapitulation of the quest of the ring, right? Um, With Frodo bearing the crown as he bore the ring and Gandalf laying the crown because he was the one who was the great enemy of Sauron who was orchestrating the whole thing. Um, It's it's very different, right? Um, The emphasis is entirely different and Aragorn is more secure politically, Right. Um, Aragorn's reign, Aragorn's crowning becomes something much more mythical. It it achieves its full mythical stature here with this final shift uh, in the ceremonials. Right. And in the uh, the symbolism that is implied in the ceremonials, less mundane, more mythic. Right. Mundane in the sense that politics are mundane. And if politics aren't mundane, what is? Um, Anyway, okay. All right, I'm going to end there because I'm falling asleep and reading words wrong. So I should probably uh, I should probably stop. Um, we got almost through. I think we only have what? Yeah, two slides left. Um, so we'll pick up with those at the end of next time, and then we'll continue on through. We have, I think, two more class sessions on the uh, the end uh, of the you know the rest of the writing of the Return of the King. Um, so we will do about half of that for next time. I will be here next week. Um, uh, next week on, what is it, the 5th of June. Um, so I'll see you guys next week. I will be away the week after that. So the second Wednesday of June, uh, Wednesday the 12th, I believe it is, of June. I won't be able to have class then. I'm going to be out of town. Um, uh, but I will be here next week. All right. Um, very good. Thanks, everybody, for joining me. And I will see you guys next week. Bye now. <laughs>